It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman with my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. You can email him, askdrstu at gmail.com. If you have a question for Dr. Stu, how are you, my friend? Well, Brian, I'm on Obamacare overdrive and overload. I, I, I'm like getting worn out. Yeah. Everything Obamacare, all the time. It's Obamacare 24 hours a day. Obamacare this, Obamacare that. Obama-rama. Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, Randy, Randy laughs at anything. Right. Well, no, it's funny to me because Obama Rama is something that Jesse Jackson used to chant all the time. Obama Rama, Obama Rama, Obama Rama. It was fantastic. I think that Obama Rama is uh, affecting everybody. But Doctor Stu, you are a doctor. You are there on the front lines. Have you? I, I have to ask. Uh, to, to to this moment, is Obamacare making things more difficult for you to treat your clients? On a specific basis, Brian, no, not yet. Right, you because can't, you can't say, like, last week this happened. No, but I, I will tell you that the conversation comes up, not with every client that comes in, but a lot of clients come in with questions because they want to know what I think about Obamacare. So it does take time out of my day to talk about it. It would seem to me that'd be a hard thing. If I were in your position, that would be difficult. People would come, because it's such a complex thing. As Nancy Pelosi said, we have to pass it to understand what's in it. And then people are coming to you saying, tell me this or that. And oh, you it's, might not, not, it's not complex at all, Brian. I can sum it up in two words. It sucks. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Is that an official sort of, as a doctor, is that your official statement? Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, you know, because, you know, I, I have libertarian leanings and I, and I believe in individual uh, or personal responsibility and individual liberty. And uh, I just think that the paternalism being shown by our, our administration right now just uh, is is awful it gives me a, a sort of a sick we were talking in the car it gives yeah. us a, a nauseous feeling in our stomach to know that we were lied to that they continue to obfuscate that they the, that this is a intrusion into the ability of all of us to have our individual choices of what we want and having them tell us that they know better that we're going to get rid of your policy because your policy wasn't good enough for our standards. I mean, I got to live by government standards now since when are government standards higher than mine or yours? Well, okay. But, but I mean, to answer your question, we've all been living with government standards for a long time. Our entire lives. We've been living under the governmental standards, haven't we? In other well, areas. Well, of life. yeah, but Brian, you know what? I mean, I look back and I talk about this with you and I talk about it with my kids. Uh, Government, the government has only grown since I can remember everything. I just remember way back when things were much simpler, when you could ride a bike without a helmet, when you could uh, you know, sit in the back seat of your car and not necessarily wear a seatbelt. I remember traveling with my parents, sleeping on the back part of the window. You didn't have to be buckled up. And everything wasn't micromanaged and overregulated. I, you know, this brings up a perfect example of something that happened in L.A. last week, and, I, and, it, and it just it exemplifies to me how big government has gotten and how impersonal uh, and uncaring it is. Are you that, referring to the shooting at yeah. LAX? How did you know that? Well, because that's really what happened last week. Oh, so okay. I just sort of figured that's where you were. Headed. It wasn't because we talked about it before the show. No, by the way, <laughs> no. But this is this is one of these uh, events. Obviously, on Friday, a week ago. Uh, Here in Los Angeles. Right, a shooting at LAX and uh, a, a TSA agent being killed, other people being shot and wounded. All right, well, here's my deal. I think there are eight terminals at Los Angeles. There's Terminal 1 through 7, and then there's the Bradley Terminal, right? right. Am I correct? The Bradley International okay. Terminal. So this happened in Terminal 3. Right. And the shooting took place, and planes that were landing 
at that time that were supposed to unload at Terminal 3 were left sitting on the tarmac for more than six hours with people on board right. because it was a crime scene. Now, if the government really cared about people, wouldn't somebody say to the pilot of that plane, hey, why don't you taxi over to Terminal 4 and let your people off? But we're so bureaucratic. We are so worried about liability or litigation or being called stupid or doing something wrong that the authorities, no one takes charge anymore. No, I mean, there were people that were trapped on airplanes. For hours and for hours. hours and hours and hours, and they were given nothing. There's no, no, not really much ventilation on there. They were just sitting there. It's horrible if you can even imagine that for all those hours on an airplane. Oh, just terrible. No, and, and you know, it, it, to me, it, it brings up an example because the, that bothered me, and then you told me something Yes. Uh, that, you know, your employer came to you recently and said, you know, Brian, you're the only person here who hasn't signed the employee handbook, yes. which is something that no one reads, but once a year you have to check a little box that says you read it. And that's exactly what I did today. I checked the box. Right. Uh, oh, oh, wait. I read, the, I read the handbook, right? Yeah, you read it. Oh, yeah, I read it. Right. That's, oh, yeah, Dr. Stu. I read the handbook first, and then I checked the box. Cover to cover. Right. Read right. it. I really mean, addressed I was, that thing. I really got into it. I got and under we, the hood. We know your boss is listening to the show right now, so right. we want him to be sure that he knows you I, read the handbook. I read the handbook, cover to cover, and then I had other coworkers quiz me on it just to make sure that I knew but exactly these, what but was in there. these kind of things happen, and they overwhelm common sense. They overwhelm a sense of personal responsibility that everyone has to sign, that everyone has to take diversity training. Everyone has to sit on the tarmac. The police, even when there's an accident, when I remember when I was younger and there was an accident on the road, yeah. people would get out of their car, all right, and they'd push the cars off the side of the road. I remember that too. Okay, so people could get by. Right. Now, they tape you off the road for five hours so they could take pictures of the skid marks. Well, and of course, why would any person who's on that freeway or on that highway with the, you're right, with litigation the way it is, nobody in their right mind today would get out and go near that scene and try to push the car out of the way. There are people who are afraid to help people who are who are in need because they're afraid of the liability. You see somebody maybe, you know, who's not well at a restaurant or choking is a bad example. I don't know. But, but, but people don't want to involve themselves anymore with another person's problem because they don't want to be litigated against at some point. Well, a dear friend of mine uh, was sued once for performing CPR on a stranger. Oh, Whoa. really? Really? Yes. Oh, that's a great story, I think. He broke a rib on the person, but he saved the person. The person actually lived. Was it a restaurant or something? This was back east. I right. don't know the details. I right. think it was on the street. He just saw somebody down. He was a medical student or a, uh, a resident at the time, and he performed CPR, and he got sued. Now, eventually it got dropped, but he had to travel back and forth and give deposits. I mean, it's just this kind of thing. And the reason I sort of brought this up today is because I was in a conversation with a client the other day. They were telling me about the birth of their baby. They, they were uh, from Santa Barbara, and they had a previous cesarean section, and they were planning a VBAC, which right. is a vaginal birth after cesarean. Right. And it turned out at 37 weeks, their baby was also breech. And they didn't really want to do a version, because, which is turning the baby, because they felt that that was too much... Um, pressure on the baby that the baby has decided to be butt first and then of course they weren't ready to do both a breach and a VBAC at home it was too much for them and, and you're talking about the mom and the dad the or, mom and the dad okay so they decided to have a repeat c-section which is perfectly fine perfectly reasonable choice on their on their uh in this situation right however they were telling me about the birth of their baby and normally at a c-section at this particular hospital 
the baby is taken from the mother's womb and put over at the warmer and then the baby is dried off at the warmer and examined and then they wrap the baby up and they take the baby to the nursery they say hi to the mom wave behind the curtain hi to the mom the dad goes off with the baby to the nursery and the mom sort of left alone right well they really had requested uh some skin-to-skin contact with their child with the baby on the mother's chest behind the drape and in in uh, praise of the hospital in this particular situation. They had a wonderful nurse who decided that they, she was going to help them do that. But the only way they could do that is if they could get an extra nurse in the room to watch the baby on the mother's chest. Now, help me understand something for people who are not Dr. Stu or Dr. So-and-so or, or uh, for a woman who's not been pregnant. So the, so the birth happens and she wants to hold her baby. But there's some sort of policy that would say well, you can't do that. Is that what- first of all, her arms are strapped down, sort of like Jesus Christ. They're uh-huh. strapped down. Right. And a lot of times it, at, at hospitals I used to work at, they'd free up one arm so the mother could take an arm and hold the baby there. But remember, the dad is sitting right next to there, and the anesthesiologist is sitting right next to there after a cesarean. After a cesarean, during so, during surgery. A cesarean. Right. Correct. Okay. But in this particular hospital, they have a policy that the, in order for the baby to be on the skin, they have to have a nurse. Hope with one hand on the baby at all times. Okay. Now, I mean, explain this to me. The father is sitting right there. Why can't the father be sure the baby doesn't fall onto the floor? Because oh, can I answer? Yeah. Are you on an answer? Yes. And I'm not a doctor or 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 an expert. You're not a doctor. We all I'm know not... the answer. Well, dad, the answer a... is not very satisfying to me. Well, to me, the answer is dad's not a healthcare professional, right? A hel- you takes a healthcare professional to hold a baby on mom's chest. Well, to guard against litigation, doesn't well, it? Well, there we go. That's the point I'm talking about, and you knew that you don't know where I'm going with this. It's the same thing what happened at the airport, why you have to check the little box once a year, which, you, which of course, you read, but no uh, one else in your, in your office read. I can't speak for the others, but I know I read it. From, Gosh, from cover to cover. It. Cover to cover, I know I read but it. But here, here it is that the, if they couldn't have had an extra nurse to do that, then this hospital wasn't going to allow this mother to have skin-to-skin contact because the father is not capable of making sure his baby doesn't fall on the floor. Right, right. And what happens when they leave the hospital? Then the hospital is no longer liable. So, I mean, isn't this, haven't we reached a breaking point where, where with all that's going on in the world, that we reach a point where this is just an, uh, enough already? Well, you told us a great story, and, and, uh, because you and I have so many conversations off the air. We talk all the time, and, 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 and sometimes we have them here on the podcast. But uh, you had a story, I don't know if you shared it, about the mom who you were, she had her baby, and she texted you and said, I haven't seen my babies or her twins. And you called her and said, how come you haven't seen your twins? And she said, well, they took them away. And they said, I have to pee first, right? She, yeah. she said, I have to urinate first before they'll let me get up out of this bed and go see my babies. That's right. And you said to her, put your slippers on, get out of the bed. They're not going to arrest you. Right. Right. And yeah. I mean, again, the bureaucracy is such that they've lost the humanity. And leaving somebody on an airplane for six hours or not letting a woman uh, have her baby on her chest because you may not have an extra nurse. Or this is a great example. I'm glad you brought that up of the lady with the twins whose babies were in the NICU because they were born, uh, let's see, uh, six weeks early. Right. And they were fine. But uh, she was not allowed to go see them until she peed. And this was already seven or eight hours after she'd given birth. She had not held or touched her babies yet. And it's crazy because the nurse was, has a policy that says she can't go up until she's peed. But I don't know if that has anything to do with a vaginal birth or a, a ser- even a cesarean birth. You have a Foley catheter and you put them in a wheelchair. You go up and see their baby. What's the most important thing for newborn babies and a newborn mother? 
To make contact. No, it's to pee first. Oh, right. Okay. No, it's to, yeah, it's to right. be, con- yeah, of yeah. course it's to be contact. What's the most important thing for people who land at an airport? Get off that plane. Get off the plane. Right. You've got seven other terminals you can take her to. Take them to. Yeah, it, it, it is odd. Can you imagine? I mean, look, I mean, you know, when you think of the... Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you think of, obviously, somebody was killed, and you're right, it's a crime scene. But at the same time, okay, if you can't let us off the plane at this terminal, well, then taxi up is going to take you f- uh, five minutes and let us off at the next terminal. You no, know, I mean, I... They, or, they, you know what, they, pick they, this plane up and drop us in Phoenix, and or, let me get out of the plane yeah, in Phoenix. Yeah, or take us over to Burbank, for God's sakes, or Ontario. Right. You know, I mean, the, the idea that you have to shut down an entire airport, or that you have to shut down an entire freeway, or that you have to shut down. I mean, look at. I mean, look at Boston after the the marathon the marathon bombing. bombing. Right. They basically shut down Boston for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't I mean, open your business. Couldn't go to the business. Couldn't do business. Is I mean, does is this what we've come to? I mean, are we really? You know, as the national anthem says, the land of the free or the land of the free and the, the home, home of the. Brave. Brave, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have I you heard mean, me sing it? Have you heard me sing it? No, you, you sing wanna... it? No, I don't sing it. That's why I haven't heard it. Well, you did it. pretty well right there. Yeah, well, I, I remember the lyrics, and they say when people sing the national anthem, that's the greatest fear. They'll forget the lyrics. Can you do singing. an impression of someone singing the national anthem? No, I don't sing. <laughs> I don't sing. But thank you for asking. I've heard you sing. I'm not a good singer. It's very, I'm a very bad singer, in fact. No, nah, I've heard you do some Sinatra. You're fantastic. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, so that's what I'm saying, and, and that's sort of what's got me. You asked me how I'm doing. That's yeah, the first well, thing you always ask me when we start our podcast. I want to take your temperature, your emotional temperature. No, and I, you know what? Otherwise, my life is really good right now, and my, my, my clients, my practice, you know, we seem to be doing well. Right. Despite all this stuff going on, but I, this is... It just sort of starts to wear on you, and I feel bad for my children who don't know what it's like to have freedom. They don't know what it's like to see their liberty. They don't even know. I mean, I have a, I have a uh, UCLA grad, uh, uh-huh. graduate student following me around three days a week, and we had a conversation yesterday about these sorts of issues, and it was really fascinating to hear what she's, the things that she said. Right. Because she, she thinks that the government, she thinks that the healthcare law is probably a good thing because there's too much obesity mm. and she thinks that the government should be deciding to do something about obesity and right. i said why is it the first thing you go to is the government what does the government do well well you and i have talked about this what happens is uh you know a generation or two detached from pre-obamacare will never know life without it Right. And this is what happens. Younger folks, I'm younger than you are, Randy's younger than I am. We all have a different sort of frame of reference and and it, and it does become very easy for an entire society to expect as the norm something that 20 years ago was completely dismissed as as abnormal. Yeah. Why why do they why is it that the the knee jerk of this person who obviously spent 4 years in college? A smart person. Yeah. And you know, I don't know whether she was like this before she went to college or not, but her initial response was that the government should do something about obesity. Right. That's like, "Oh my god. I mean, I'm just I'm just going to blow my brains out." Right. You can't this believe the, it. This is the future. This is the she's a, she wants to go to medical school. Right. And she's really bright, but but her initial response to anything is have she always and she uses the proverbial they they should fix this. And I always ask somebody, who's, who's they? they? Yeah, right. What's the answer you get when you ask who they are? The government. Right. And I go, well, then who's that? And, and, <laughs> and, do, you, and do you like the fact that, you know, they want to tell you, 
you know, uh, what kind of car you need to drive and what kind of light bulb you need to have. And, dietary restrictions and, the, and things the, like yeah, that. Yeah, and, right. and the things that go on with Mayor Bloomberg, and uh, who's probably no longer mayor. Well, he's still mayor for another right. few hours. Right, right, he'll be out of there soon, Right, soon enough. The new mayor, by the way, in New York, Bill de Blasio, had a campaign meeting, a rally on a Saturday at 1130 in the morning, the Saturday before Election Day. And eleven thirty rolled around, and they said, "Where's uh, the candidate? Where's you know the next mayor? He's not here yet. Well, he's probably running late, but you know I know Bill De Blasio. He's always he'll, he'll make it here. Eleven forty-five. Has anybody seen Bill? No, he's not here. Well, we call him. He was asleep. <laughs> he said that his sleep was all screwed up because he was uh, on a, a phone call in the morning, and that it was late at eleven thirty Saturday before the election. He was late to a campaign rally because he was sleeping. How yeah. in the world did that happen? Well, let me ask a question: Why? Why does a Democrat in New York City need a campaign rally anyway? Well, we, but you know why? Yeah, that's a, that is a very a very fair question. Well, you know, in, in New York now, Mayor Bloomberg, and I know this will surprise. Folks like yourself, I know you're a libertarian, but my Republican friends will be well served for me to remind you that Mike Bloomberg was elected 12 years ago as a Republican. Before him, Rudy Giuliani was a Republican. So to have a liberal Democratic mayor in New York is a little bit foreign to people under 20 years old, right? But it's sort of going back to basics, right? This is a he's sort of an Ed Koch, Mario Cuomo, New York liberal Democrat guy. Do you think yeah. the new guy will bring back soda? I hope he brings back soda. I, yeah. think, I, think, I think that was overturned anyway. I think big soda is already back. Right. I, I, that would be my platform to bring back soda. Right. Why not? But again, this is the mentality there that my my uh, student. Who is sort of shadowing you, right? shadowing me. It's the mentality that she has. Yeah. That, that because people might be a little overweight, that with the government. And I can tell you that as a result of when we once get single payer and it's national health care. There will be, because uh, uh, because because the intrusion into your life from progressives, yeah, never ends. Well, you know, people they're say, never satisfied. That there's always something to be progressed about. People say <laughs> that's funny. People say they want the government out of their bedroom, and I agree with that. I also want them out of my refrigerator. Yeah, you know, I I look at my most of my midwife friends are liberal. Yeah, all right, and and and, and understandably so because. Liberals have this idea that they are in touch with nature. They're they're earthy. They're, they're earthy. They want to protect the world, uh, the the planet. They want to. They're, they're pro-choice. They have all these these things. Sure. So then, but then when they what goes on in Sacramento? Because we talked in a previous podcast about Assembly Bill thirteen oh eight. Yeah. And what goes on in Sacramento is that that we got the midwives were freed of the uh, responsibility of having physician supervision, but. There were a whole bunch of other stuff stuck in the bill yeah. that they don't like. Right. And probably weren't terribly aware of during the debate. And about again, it. they're they're defining things, you know, as normal birth, but yet they've left the the definitions to the regulatory action that comes after the bill has been passed. And so they're complaining about that. And I and I sometimes wanna just shake my head or slap one of them across the face and just say, you know, you guys, these are the people you're voting for. I mean, everything that happens in California happens from the left. I mean, there is nobody on the right in California that holds statewide office. Democrats have a supermajority. They have a supermajority in the in the state assembly and and uh, the legislature. Senate. You're right. Right. So um, when these things get stuck in there, it's because they can't stop meddling in your life. Mm. They don't know how to do that. And so I look at the simple thing like having a baby on your chest, or as you said, not being able to see your babies until they pee. These things have to stop. People have to just. You know, sometimes you have to rise up and you have to have some sort of civil disobedience. Mm. And I don't mean violent disobedience, but you have to ask why. 
Why can't I do this? Well, that's your generation, Dr. Stu. I mean, come on. Well, yeah, I was. Did you uh, get out there in the 60s? Were you marching and, no, and going I was, crazy I out there? No, I was only like 10 years old in the 60s. You know, my parents, well, I, well, my parents, if they were alive, would be in their 60s. They would be 65, I think. Yeah, my mom and dad. I be, could be your dad. Oh, gosh. Let's not even go there. Could you be my dad? Yeah, I well, would have been 15. Would you call him Possible. dad? I, you know, I, I, I would prefer to think of you as my big brother. Okay. Okay. All right. But that's not, fair. Not Papa Stu? Papa <laughs> Stu. Dr. Stu. Well, you know what happened was, to me, it, it, it's very interesting because uh, my parents were born in 1947. And I would sit around with them, and I was getting excited. You know, I was a liberal kid. And I'd say, Mom, Dad, you know, tell me about the 60s. You were 18 in 1965. Tell me what you did. Tell me about a rally. Tell me about a sit-in. Tell, give me something good. And my parents looked at me and said, who do you think we are? Yeah. <laughs> my yeah. father said I was in Vietnam. My mom said I was, you know, I had a job as a secretary, and I went home at night and slept in my parents' house. Yeah, you know what? Well, I said, oh, okay, so you're kind of boring, Mom. And they said, yeah, we were boring in the 60s. You know, while people, while people were celebrating at Woodstock, I had a paper out. Right. Right? right. I was a busboy. Right, okay? right. I, I, listened, I listened to the monkeys, you know? <laughs> you did, right? And, and the Beach Boys and that sort of thing. Those were the band. I mean, I, you know, Woodstock was so far from anything that I... Look, most of America was not Woodstock. Right. All right? right. They just made the news. Right. And that's why I was always with my mom and dad. I'd say, come on. You know, something would happen, right? Be like a big election or something would go on. We'd be talking about an issue because my parents and I, my dad, we would disagree on politics a lot. We had a wonderful relationship. We disagreed on politics, a lot of political issues. I said, where were you? Like, you know, I would say to my parents, you know, John, John Kennedy, when, when he died, you know, tell me because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the shooting of JFK. I'd say, so tell me what happened. You know, what'd you do? I said, we were in school. They came and told us. We went home. It was sad. Well, I, I, well I, re I remember that vividly. You do, right? Oh, yeah. I was in second grade spelling class. Oh, wow. Mrs. Hummel. Wow, isn't that wild? And Robert Gary, whose parents were, rep uh, were Republicans. Right. Uh, it was a classmate? Pretty much, every, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much everybody in, in, when I was growing up was Democrat. Yeah. I mean, it's Minnesota. Of okay? course. Hubert Humphrey so Land. So he's Hubert Humphrey Land, Walter Mondale Land. It was pretty much Democratic. Even my family was Democratic. I've evolved since then. I've gotten wiser. Right. But uh, Robert Gary, whose family was Republican, stood up on his desk and said, good, I'm glad. Ooh, when Mrs. Hummel came in and said the president's been shot. I remember she came in crying her eyes out. School was dismiss, dismissed early. They sent you home. We sent it home. Of course, we walked in those days. Right. We did, too. I, 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 it's funny what we were talking a moment ago about not wearing a seatbelt and, you know, all the how our childhoods were different, certainly from young people today. And uh, I tell people that they often can't believe that. My brother and I walked to school with probably three or four other kids. And I mean, we were six or seven years old. We were that small. I was maybe six or seven. My brother was nine. And we walked to school. Yeah. And we walked home oh, at three o'clock when school was over. From first grade, I walked. Right. It right. doesn't happen anymore. Right. No, it doesn't. I mean, And you can't I, blame parents I, I for can, that. I can imagine my kids growing up and talking to their kids and saying, and they said, Daddy, what, you know, what, when you were young, what was it like? He said, oh, it was horrible. I had to play Grand Theft Auto in two dimensions. <laughs> you know? I mean. <laughs> that's very funny. Right. Yeah, that's very it funny. Was, it was horrible. Yeah. Right. 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 Isn't that funny? Oh, wow. We have uh, emails, of course, and we invite you to email. If you have a question for Dr. Stu, ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. Ask Dr. Stu at gmail.com. We have a letter. We do indeed have a letter. Stop, whoa, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, wait, now, that sounds very sort of 1960s, right? The Postman coming, bringing actual 
Yeah, paper we, it might have been. It might have even been fifties, I think. Yeah, these of course are electronic. It's electronic mail, as you know. That's what the E stands for in email. It's electronic mail. Ask, That's what it stands for. Yeah, really. You didn't know that, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. See, we learn something on every edition of Doctor Stu's podcast. This comes to us from Rachel. Comes to Doctor Stu mm-hmm. at ask Stu at gmail and she writes, "I have a topic about a subject that is taboo and a question." There is not a lot of information about miscarriage, she writes. It's a fairly emotionally lonely time with information found mainly from other women or on the Internet. She writes, the natural approach is simply wait it out and take a pregnancy test in six weeks. She writes, the hypermedical approach is get a DNC immediately. There's no informational resources as to the evidence-based approach to management, nor information, she writes, on endocrinology tests and what they mean. And she says, I'd like to see case studies straight from an OB as to the commonality of this. First-hand stories of success after two miscarriages. And I don't know that uh, this is something that Rachel has dealt with, but perhaps it is. She says she'd love to hear Dr. Stu discuss it. And thanks for the great resource in your podcast. Thank you, Rachel, for the email. Okay, I I have a lot to say on this topic, and I'm going to try to get it in before we run out of time. First of all, the human condition of miscarriage is fairly common. Um, in general, about one-third of early conceptions, mm. or 30% or so, will miscarry of no fault of anything. There's nothing wrong. It's just, it's just one of the, uh, the, state, the, the status of human reproduction. And when you we're, say, not as, we're not as efficient as, say, rabbits who rarely uh, miscarry. When you say that it happens uh, 30% of the time, might I ask, it happens 30% of the time how soon after conception? There's a timeline well, Within there? the first 10 weeks. Okay. Now, the problem is, of course, that there are many different types of miscarriage. There's something called a blighted ovum. There's something called a fetal demise, something called a chemical pregnancy, and they're all different. But for the sake of conversation today, let's just say that, that most miscarriages are either something called a blighted ovum or a very early fetal demise. And when that happens, it usually is because there's a chromosomal boo-boo that occurs early in pregnancy, uh, uh, unrelated to anything that the person can do. We're not so powerful that because we had an x-ray or because we drank some wine or because we smoked some pot or because we had, uh, went through the metal detector at the airport that we're going to cause a miscarriage. You can't cause a normal pregnancy to miscarry short of maybe falling out of a third-story window or getting hit by a bus. Mm. All right. So people that miscarry um, early in their pregnancy, it, it really cannot be caused by anything that they do. Mm. Also, one of the problems of miscarriages is Which that... Which is an important thing, if I just may, because, I, because there is obviously a lot of unnecessary guilt when it happens. Oh, there's, there's guilt, there's blame, there's... there's, there's uh, what, what do you call Resentment. it? Resentment. Yeah, and there's also bargaining, trying to figure out, yeah, you know, right. with God, what did, what did I do wrong, that yeah. sort of thing. It, 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 the simple answer is sometimes you did nothing and wrong, And it's really right? important for, for women. And I find, when I find a, a patient who has a blighted ovum, that I reassure them that, you know what, there was never a fetus here... And there was never really an entity here. And although a lot of a pregnancy, whether you lose it at uh, five weeks or whether you lose it at 20 weeks or whether you lose it at uh, two years of age, it's still a, a tragedy and it should not be belittled by a physician or anybody in the family to just say, well, you know, get over it. It was, you know, you, you just get on with your life. And right. So terrible. That would be terribly insensitive. It's a big advice. loss. The minute you, when it, minute a couple finds out they're pregnant, their whole life is projected in front of them. Yeah. You know, they're thinking about the kid going to school, riding a bicycle, playing catch, all this stuff. And, and then when they miscarry, it's a loss and it has to be grieved appropriately. But sometimes you don't, you know, you don't miscarry till 12 or 13 weeks and you go, oh my God, um, I'm miscarrying a 12-week fetus. 
But if you actually would have had an ultrasound during that time, you would have found even at six or seven weeks that the fetus didn't ne never developed and that just placental tissue developed. And placental tissue is the thing that makes the hormone that makes you feel pregnant, makes your breast tender, makes you retain water, makes you slightly nauseous. It's the thing that tests positive on the pregnancy test. It gives you those initial indicators. That, that'll still rise for a while until somehow biologically the placenta figures out, wait a minute, there's no fetus here. And then the hormone levels start to fall. The first thing that usually goes away is the breast tenderness or nausea will disappear. Then some spotting will start. Right. And then bleeding and cramping. And then you will miscarry. Right. Um, she also asked a question about D's and C's and the immediate need for a D and C. There are about three different ways to deal with somebody whose miscarriage is discovered prior to the process of, of miscarrying. Once you're in the process of miscarrying, generally about 85 to 90% of the time, a miscarriage will take place completely on its own, but it'll be uncomfortable. There'll be some heavier bleeding. There'll be some bad cramping. It'll go on for maybe three to 12 hours of, of pretty intense bleeding and cramping. A woman may and, or may and not- And pain, Dr. Stu, pain? Well, crampy pain. I mean, right. okay. it, it's pain, yes. Uh -huh. And some women are more wired for pain than others and right. can't, can't specifically state how bad it will be. But when you find a miscarriage that hasn't happened yet, what we would call a missed abortion, it could be called an inevitable miscarriage, called a blighted ovum. There's many different sort of words. Descriptors? Yeah, there are words that are used to describe basically the same thing. Sort of labels? For the, for the sake of our conversation, we'll just call them all the same thing. And so you're, there are three choices. Some women choose to wait, and it may take a couple of days to a few weeks, and they'll eventually miscarry on their own with about the 85 to 90% success rate. Mm. Uh, some people choose to have a DNC because there's either a lot of tissue in there or they don't want to carry this around for a couple, of, they just want to be over and done with, mm -hmm. or maybe they're worried about their insurance situation. And by the way, if you do miscarry at night and you end up bleeding really heavily and have to go to the emergency room, you're stuck with a large bill, whereas in the office setting, it's something that can be done. It really takes about one minute to do a completion DNC mm -hmm. on somebody who has a blighted ovum. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's such a, um, everybody knows somebody, of course, who is, uh, everybody knows a lady who has pretty suffered. much if since one third of all conceptions will miscarry pretty much, it's very normal for everybody to know somebody who's miscarried. That's yeah. Correct. And, and obviously I, I, I know my place here. I want to be very sensitive about it. Um, the, the, uh, the emotional impact that it might have on, a, uh, on a woman, uh, is different from woman to woman, right? I mean, I mean, some might internalize and deal with this in a way that is different than how another of course, might. It's, of course, it's uh, how everybody, everybody responds to different life stresses. It, it's a sadness, and it takes, it takes uh, some women a lot of time to recover. Uh, some women ask the question, you know, what happens if it's two miscarriages or three miscarriages yeah, in she a write, row? Rachel writes that. Well, the chance of, if you take a woman before she's had any pregnancies, the chance of her having two miscarriages in a row, essentially one in three times one in three or one in nine. Mm. That's 11%. It's not that rare. So the evaluation for miscarriage usually is defined as somebody who miscarriages three times in a row. The term for that is called habitual miscarriage or habitual, the medical term is abortion. And that's a scary thing, I would assume, for any woman because then she feels like she can't get pregnant. Well, then you start to investigate things and there are things to look for. There's the potential for the one of the parents to c carry a a balanced translocation where half the sperm or half the eggs are abnormal. There's a possibility of a uterine anomaly. There's a possibility of an uh, infection covered with a certain bacteria causing problems. There's a, a possibility of a hormonal or endocrine problem. So you, work, you, you, you do a workup on that. Some people will have the workup done after one. 
or two or three, depending a lot of times on their level of anxiety, yeah. sometimes their age. I mean, if somebody is 22 and has a miscarriage, we generally don't do a workup on them. If they're 42 and they're a little panicked, mm-hmm. we would still probably suggest that they are likely that this is a spontaneous event and not to get too worked up as far as needing an evaluation and spending but, their money on it. But, but if they want one, you understand someone's desire to want answers. They're more they're more anxious when they get when they've delayed childbearing for that long period of time. Right, right. So. So, and, but about 50% or more than 50% of the time when you work up somebody, even with three straight miscarriages, um, you don't find anything wrong. And then you just have to keep trying. And other, uh, some people, they, women ask me, well, after I miscarry, I've heard that I need to wait three months to try to conceive again. And my feeling is that that's not true. The lining of the uterus regenerates itself every two, uh, after two weeks. You get a period, and with two weeks later, the lining is ready to go. If you have a DNC or if you have a miscarriage, your body will probably not ovulate until it's ready to get pregnant again. It might be two weeks later. It might be six or eight weeks later. Mm. So I don't tell people they need to wait to get to pregnant from a physical point of view. Right. From a mental or emotional point of view, they need to recover until they feel feel ready to do it again. You know, I was seeing on television on the E Channel because I, you know, I don't do anything during the day if I don't watch my E Channel and get my E News. So I'm watching about mm-hmm. Drew Drew Barrymore, who is a new mom. I think her uh, child is 13 months old or something like that, and uh, she's pregnant again. She's having another baby, and it and it got me to wondering about how how common that is, obviously, to get pregnant again because it does happen where women will have a baby and then they're pregnant again. The babies are so close to each other, and uh, in terms of age. And I'm it, an Irish twin. Well, that's Irish twins, they call them, right? Yeah, you are. Aren't, <laughs> My we, brother is 10 months younger than me. How common is that, Dr. Stu? That's sort of really uncommon. 30 days after it, I popped out, they said, we got to get this fucker a friend. It's very, it's very uncommon. All right. Do you have, is he your friend? Yeah. Okay. He is his friend. All right. Yeah, you we, guys, were, we yeah, were best friends growing up. It's pretty up. uncommon because, uh, especially with breastfeeding, which is sort of encouraged these days, um, over bottle feeding, yep. that the breastfeeding in and of itself is something that delays ovulation because mm-hmm. the hormone levels are really low. Right. So, you, you know, your mom obviously had uh, did not have fertility issues. Randy? No, she did no. not. Right. No. And, uh, she got her in here. She'd come in in a second. Oh, yeah. Pam? She loves you. But no, the, she's the best. I love your mom. The, the hormones of breastfeeding generally suppress that and, and also is, is something that is important for the species mm. because little baby humans are born helpless. Yeah, right. And they need their moms. And it wouldn't serve the species well for a woman who is lact- is nursing her one-month-old baby to get pregnant again and have two babies 10 months apart who both are still breastfeeding, that's not great for the species. Your mom is a superhuman. But she is a superhuman. For the most part, that's not the case. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's a good question, though. Yeah, interesting. And we encourage you, if you have a question for Dr. Stu, askdrstew at gmail.com. Askdrstew at gmail.com for your questions, your comments. Dr. Stu reads all of them, and we respond to a lot of them here on the show. And I would like to say that to Rachel, if she has any further questions or wants to me to re- respond to her specifically, she can email me back, and I'll be more than happy to respond to her on, off, the, off the air. Okay, and Rachel, thank you for that. We appreciate it very much. And Dr. Stu, as always, great to see you, my friend. You too, Brian. All right, register. Subscribe for this. Register. Sign up. It's like Obamacare. Get enrolled and, with Dr. Stu's podcast. I wouldn't say it's like Obamacare. Okay. And conscientiously object to being told what to do all the time by they out there, the they's. And who's they? The government. And who's that? <laughs> As you asked. It's not her. us. Right. Okay. You know, not it's you supposed to be us. Right. It's supposed to be representative government, but it's not us. All right. Well, we thank you for the subscribing on iTunes. Give them five I mean, stars. Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody 
who likes Obamacare right now? I, I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring somebody on the next podcast who likes Obamacare. Give me some time to dig Please someone don't. up, and I'll bring them in here. Okay, uh, that's a challenge. Yeah. I don't really want to associate with those kinds of oh, people. No, guys. I would love to look. At, I'd like to get contrary people. I'd like to get some physicians in here who don't think home birthing is smart. I'd like to get physicians in here who who have a different opinion than mine. Problem is, I can't get them to come on the air. Don't be afraid of Doctor Stu. Yeah, don't be afraid of Doctor Stu. Right. Don't shrink in the face of differing viewpoints and opinions. Get in here. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Stu. All right, Brian. We'll see you next time on Dr. Stu's Podcast. <laughs>